Well, if you take your Bibles with me and turn again to the book of Haggai, Haggai chapter number two, we're going to be looking at verse number 10. Haggai chapter 2, verse number 10. We're going to read uh, down through verse number 19. Um, If you were so far thinking that, um, you know, Haggai, minor prophet, not that difficult, Um, it's all making sense, Uh, you know, it uh, doesn't seem that uh, challenging or complex, Um, this is probably the most heavy lifting passage um, within the book, Uh, this and uh, uh, potentially the next one. Uh, but um, this is uh, the passage that will probably challenge us a little bit um, as we work our way through it to wrap our minds around it. Um, but I have great confidence, right? Um, we can do this together. So follow along with me as we read. Uh, and I think I put this up on the screen. Uh, verse number 10. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, Uh, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, so is it with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands. And what they offer there is unclean. Now then consider from this day onward, the four stone was placed upon stone uh, in the temple of the Lord, How did you fare? When one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were but 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were but 20. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day forward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, Since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. Now verse 10 makes it clear that Haggai's third prophetic speech is given a little over two months um, after his previous one and exactly three months um, after work began on the temple anew, right? Uh, The day marks the day when the temple was founded, um, a significant event that uh, makes a turning point in God's relationship with his people, but their progress on the temple demonstrates that they've turned back to God, to Yahweh in obedience, and he now promises that the cursing will turn into blessing. And so in essence, um, Haggai returns here to really kind of the foundational message of chapter 1, verse 1 through 11. The difference is not so much one of content, but emphasis. Um, In chapter 1, 1 through 11, he's concerning himself mainly 
with diagnostics. He's saying how, what is happening um, and uh, how it can be cured. But here he repeats himself, but he goes on to the promise of a healthy and a fulfilled life that awaits the cured patient. And so that's kind of the setting uh, that we're talking about. Here's the simple idea, and you have it there in your notes. God blesses his people when they are holy before him. Uh, and so we're going to think about this. We're going to dwell on this. And maybe this will go a slightly different direction than you were anticipating. Um, but I want us to, to think deeply about this. Now, you're supposed to really answer one question in a message, but I'm breaking the rules. Uh, and I'm going to answer two main questions. Here's the first one. How does someone obtain ritual holiness? And the second one is how should someone, or excuse me, why should someone obtain ritual holiness? Holiness, And you say, Pastor Steve, or Steve, uh, why, why, did you, uh, why did you say ritual holiness? Because I think that term ritual holiness is really crucial. I'm trying to distinguish it uh, from practical holiness. Um, so we want to examine these questions. How does someone obtain ritual holiness? Ritual holiness requires real repentance. Verse number 11, thus says the Lord of hosts, Ask the priest about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? And the priest answered and said, no. Um, so here's the idea uh, that, uh, that he wants to bring out in verse number 13. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touch any of these does it become unclean? And the priest answered and said, it does become unclean. So the first thing we need to wrap our minds around is that uncleanness spreads. Um, that this uncleanness had affected both the people and their work. Um, so Haggai is asking the priest to give a verdict with regard to a couple of questions from the Torah for the practical life of the Israelite. And this is where the heavy lifting is, right? Because we're not used to this. Uh, we don't think in these terms. This isn't how we live and operate. But if you think about um, the various uh, kind of jobs uh, within the Old Testament, uh, sacrificial system, and one of them was the priest. And what is the priest supposed to do? The priest is um, ulti ultimately supposed to uh, you know, answer questions about the law um, and to uh, cause people to be holy before the Lord. And so Haggai is saying, go to a priest and ask them this question. If a, if a holy person or object uh, may have what we would call direct contact uh, with something else, will it make it holy? Uh, and if an unclean object has direct contact with something else, uh, will it make it unclean. Uh, and so we just need to wrap our minds about what he's, what he's asking, right? Um, so if someone takes that meat, and if you had this meat that was purified, it was made holy, um, so this is ritual holiness, uh, and so they have done everything that they needed to cause this meat to be holy before the Lord. And so God looks upon this, and because they obeyed the Torah, uh, they obeyed what the law said, God said, this piece of meat is holy before him. And if you take that meat and you wrap it, because you don't want it to become unclean, right? And so in verse 12, he says, if someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment, and he touches with the fold 
something else. Okay, so you're carrying the holy meat, you have the fold, you touch something else. Does the holiness transfer? And the priests say, no. Now, you and I might have our opinions about that, but we are not experts in the law. <laughs> we're not experts in the Torah. But they were. Uh, and, of course, Haggai knows this, and they would say, no, it doesn't become holy. And then he says, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touch any of these, does it become unclean? Um, so you, you get the picture, right? Because we're talking about the meat that's holy, but it's wrapped with something else. If the thing that's wrapped touches something else, does it become holy? It doesn't. But it says, what about someone who is unclean? Uh, they have actually been unclean because they touched a dead body. Can that uncleanliness spread? So it's the same scenario, isn't it? Um, it's the same scenario. The one is saying the holy thing can touch something else, cause it to be holy, and will it cause something else to be holy? And you have this other situation where it's like the dead body, which is the unclean thing, can touch something else, a person, that spreads, that person becomes unclean. What if that person touches somebody else? It spreads again. So this is a little bit, you know, like the plague, right? <laughs> uh, where it just spreads. When you touch, it spreads and it spreads and it spreads. But the holiness doesn't do that. Um, and so that's what, he's, that's, what he is, that's what he is saying. In some senses, we could put it this way. If you put your hand in the mud and you touch something with your muddy hand, what happens? Does it get dirty? It gets dirty. It gets dirty. Uh, but if you wash your hands so they're clean, and then you touch something that is not clean, does it become clean? It does not. <laughs> because the dirty, the uncleanliness spreads, but the holiness doesn't. Um, and so he's laying this out, okay? And so that's just an analogy to try to um, help us understand what this would look like. Um, and you say, what does all of this matter? What is his point? Is he just quizzing them um, in the law? And I would say, no, um, he is not. Uh, he is actually driving home the point that uncleanness is more contagious than holiness. Now, we could probably do a whole sermon on that, couldn't we? Uh, that it is a lot easier uh, for uncleanness to spread than it is for holiness to spread. But God is using that reality to make a deeper point. And it's part, just a part of what God is saying here. Um, look at verse number 14. Then Haggai answered and said, so is it with this people. So he's using an illustration. Now for us, illustrations are common things that we're used to and it's like we see it and we understand it and we go like oh this hard truth is made simple by something that I understand for them it's the same way except they understood these things and so we look at it and we're like the law uncleanness what does the fold of the garment have to do with anything and how does holiness I don't know what's going on and so the illustration is actually confusing to us but for them it would have been enlightening they would, have, they would have heard the illustration and they would have gone like, ah, I see what he's saying there. They would have been like, yeah, that makes sense. Um, and that's what's happening here. Because he applies it to them. He says, so is it with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. 
and so with every work of their hands. And what they offer there is unclean. So here's what he's saying. He's telling the people of Israel, everything is unclean. Because the uncleanness has spread. Uh, because the temple has not been built. So both their secular work and their sacred work was unclean. Um, if the offering, if the thing that's supposed to be holy is unclean, and you're coming to that to get clean, and it's already unclean, then what happens? When you touch that unclean thing, it spreads. And so God is pointing out to them, he's like, listen, I had called you to rebuild the temple and you didn't do it. My, you refused to, to obey me. And because of that, when you come to offer sacrifices, when you come to worship me, you're coming and touching the dead body. And so you're wondering why it's not acceptable. It's because nothing is clean. Nothing's holy. You haven't made anything holy. And all you're doing is spreading the uncleanness. How do you fix that? How do you fix that? Uncleanliness spreads and disinterest reveals. You know, they're in, they're, they're, the fact that they're ignoring God was a demonstration of their lack of desire towards God. The unbuilt temple was really the source of spiritual contagion. A one commentator put it this way. He said, quote, the skeleton of the ruined temple was like a dead body decaying and making everything contaminated. Man, that's a great picture, isn't it? And that's exactly what he's laying out here. But in what sense was the unbuilt temple a contaminating agent? Well, the house of God was important as the mode of the divine indwelling among the people. And so the temple being unbuilt was a statement that it was a matter of indifference whether the Lord was among his people. And so that's why, that's why he says in chapter 2, verse 17, um, you know, uh, later on uh, in this passage, um, that's why he says, you never gave me your devotion. Uh, that's his complaint. You know, committing themselves to, to building was a testimony that the Lord mattered. And so the fact that they said, we want to build the temple, we want to obey the Lord, it was, it was evidence that he mattered to them. Because the problem was moral. And folks, I think it's important for us to recognize that. The problem with the Old Testament person is the same as the problem with the New Testament person, right? It's the heart. Um, and their heart was immoral towards the Lord. Uh, and that caused their actions to follow. You know, Haggai had uncovered and he had laid embarrassingly bare a need for repentance on part of the people if their efforts at restoration were to enjoy blessing and acceptance from God. The heart of their problem was that they acted as if life could be run without reference to God and as if grace would be theirs even though they neglected the means of grace. And again, this is so very clearly pointed out uh, in chapter 2, verse number 17, uh, where he says, I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, Yet you did not turn to me, uh, declares the Lord. And it would, hardly, it would hardly be stretching the meaning of the text uh, if God had said it more colloquially, that if he had said, I did all of these things and you didn't want me. Man, I feel that emotion from God, don't you? 
that God actually desires for us to desire him. And unless we think that that isn't the case, we have nothing more to do than to read a book like Haggai and to see that it is. And it's at that point that the coldness of the human heart and the hurt of the divine heart meet. And God says, I have done everything to pull you to me. And you just reject me. And so this disinterest that they had revealed uh, their broken heart. But then I think we need to understand that it is Jesus that cleanses. And you say, okay, well, where is Jesus in this passage? And I would say, Jesus is not in this passage. But it is Jesus that made us ritually holy. You know, friends, there is a massive and a mind-expanding difference between the sacrifices Israel needed to perform and the sacrifice that Jesus has accomplished. And we need to appreciate it. You know, the believer in Haggai's day needed to be ritually clean in order to be clean. And in order for that to happen, they needed to perform the right sacrifices with the right heart. Okay, so just understand what I'm saying. Think about that. In order for them to be ritually pure, they needed to perform the right sacrifices with the right heart. And if they didn't have those things right, then God was not pleased because they were, they were ultimately not clean, right? The fact that they didn't see the need for the temple and they were not pursuing it was a revelation of their false heart. Well, the believer in our day also needs to be ritually clean. How do we obtain ritual cleanliness? Or we could say it differently, ritual holiness. And the answer is through Jesus. But that's how we do it. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11 says, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? In Hebrews chapter 10, a few verses later, verse 12, it says, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now let's just think about the significance of this because this is massive. Jesus secured an eternal redemption. And he did so by offering a single sacrifice. Jesus perfected believers for all time. Now please understand, we are all in the process of being sanctified, of being made holy. But in God's eyes, we already are. Amen? I mean, it's a wonderful thing to recognize the differences. For Old Testament Israel, they need to be very concerned about coming and offering right sacrifices with right heart in order to be ritually holy. But Jesus has made us 
ritually holy. And you would say, Steve, my heart is not always right. My sacrifices are not always right. But I would say to you, you are still ritually holy. It's like, that doesn't seem fair. And I would say, of course it's not fair. Uh, this is why it says, the, his way, this is a better sacrifice. It's an awesome thing for us to wrap our minds around. You say, how does someone obtain ritual holiness? For them, you have to follow the prescribed system of sacrifices in the right manner with the right heart perpetually. Again and again and again and again. For us, we turn to Jesus. And we're cleansed. And you're like, no way, it can't be that easy. And I would say, it wasn't easy for Jesus. But it is easy for us. He has given that to us. You know, on Saturday in a September in 2013, one Saturday in a September in 2013, one of the most deadly terrorist attacks in history took place in an upscale mall in Kenya. Four gunmen part of the Al-Qaeda, uh, part of Al-Qaeda affiliate, they, they took the lives of 67 people, 67 people with over 200 injured. You know, by all accounts, it was a horrible disaster, but one story of the shooting ended up receiving media attention. It was the story of a young mother uh, named uh, Snena Kothar Mashru. I think I nailed that. I think I nailed it. And Snena was at the mall having coffee with a friend when the gunfire began. And having dropped to the floor, she heard a cell phone going off near her. Okay, can you just imagine the scenario? People are shooting, and you're on the floor, and the cell phone's going off, and you're like, I do not want them. I do not want to draw attention to myself. These people are trying to kill people. And so not wanting the gunman to come closer, she reached under the person next to her to silence the phone. And it was at that point as she reached underneath um, that she realized the man next to her was bleeding heavily. She said, when I put my hand under him, that's when I realized that this guy had been shot because he was bleeding. This is what she told NBC News. He was bleeding heavily and there was a lot of blood there. And at that point, she made a difficult but a life-changing decision. You know what she did? She scooped up his blood and she smeared it all over her own body. In an attempt to do what? That when the terrorists came by, they would look and what would they see? The blood. And they would assume that she was dead. Her grisly camouflage probably saved her life. Here's what she said. She said, I'd love to know who he was because I think his blood protected me. It saved my life. Okay, now let's think about this. Was she dead? No, she was not. But the blood of the dead man placed her in a position of being dead. Now, it, it was not it was not a practical reality that she was dead. But in the eyes of of the terrorists, they viewed her as if she were dead. And so they passed over her, right? I mean, we can see how clearly this points to Jesus, can't we? Um, isn't it a wonderful thing to think about? This is what Jesus has done for us, but in the reverse. So he paid for our price, and then he made us ritually clean. 
So not only did he remove our sin, but he has also taken his righteousness and put it upon us. So friends, I stand here before you righteous in the eyes of God. How is that possible? You say, Steve, I've been around you a couple days. I don't think you're righteous. <laughs> I say, I don't think I'm righteous either on a practical level. But when God looks at me, he sees the righteousness of his son. And he accepts me because of that. And it's like, how could that be the case? And I would say it is the only way that it could be the case. Because I cannot be clean myself. I cannot be holy. And dear friend, you cannot either. And so, so many times, what do we do? We attempt to be holy in order to earn favor with God. When we have already received the favor of God. Because of what Jesus has done. He looks on us that way. So how can someone obtain ritual holiness or positional holiness? And the answer is by believing in Jesus. By believing in Jesus. The second question. Why should someone obtain ritual or positional holiness? And I would say that ritual holiness results... Uh, in rich rewards. And we see this begin to play out in the rest of this passage. God's discipline is designed to bring about God's rewards. Um, look at verse number 15. Haggai 2.15. Now then, consider from this day forward. Before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were 10. When one came to a wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were but 20. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. So again, God through Haggai calls the people to consider, to say, hey, think about this. Think, how, think about how what God is saying bears up under the realities of their lives. When personal devotion to the Lord was absent, nothing went right. But when that devotion was renewed, when by their action in the temple building, they declared that it mattered to them, that the Lord was in their midst, right sacrifices with the right heart. When they returned to a God-centered lifestyle, the Lord responds by marking the date off in his calendar as the beginning of the blessing. And Haggai's application of this teaching is solely uh, to the national economy. He doesn't make a religious application. But in their agriculture, they sought creation's blessings without loving the creator. If he had made a religious application, it would have been something like this. In religion with their offerings, they sought redemption's blessing without loving the redeemer. And so God did what? God said, in order to cause you to come back to me, I'm going to punish you. In order to turn you back to me. God punished them because he loved them. So God's discipline is designed to bring about his rewards, but God's promises are also designed to bring about God's rewards. Uh, God said, I did this, but I also did something else. Verse 18. He said, consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundations of the, of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, the olive tree have, have yielded nothing, but from this day on, I will bless you. You know, the founding of the house marks a turning point in the people's spiritual and temporal fortunes. And with this, 
decision, this act, this work, they pass from divine hostility to divine blessing. Um, Haggai 2.17, God says, I struck you. Haggai 2.18, God says, I will bless you. And you see this complete reversal. And for the Israelites, God's discipline is designed to bring about his holiness, but so is God's blessing. You know, in promising blessing, Haggai is not making a shrewd calculation, you know, based on reading the economic indicators. You know, he's not going the quantity, the quality of next year's harvest are, 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 are still, they're, they're far beyond the human eye. Um, he is simply saying, because you have done this, God is going to bless you. So, God, so he's not saying, listen, all of your barns are going to be full because I've checked the almanac and I know it's going to be a, a bumper year. Uh, that's not what he's doing. He's saying it's going to be full because you're obeying God. You know, verse 10 informs us that this oracle was given in the ninth month. Uh, the ninth month is the month of December. So in ancient Palestine, summer would go from May to September. But, it, but summer was hot and it had little rain. Corn crops were harvested in May and June. And the fruits in August and September. Uh, the early rains of October and November uh, per permitted plowing and, and, and uh, sowing for the following year. So you have cold weather with intermittent rain that prevailed during December through February. And then in March through April, uh, the late rains fell and it matured the growing crops. And so this prophecy is dated mid-December. Sowing would have already taken place but they would have no idea whether the harvest was coming. They had planted, but they had no idea what it was. It was not, you know, it was, it was not waist high at the 4th of July, you know, or anything like that, right? Um, it, it was like they had no idea. It was just we put it in the ground. But he's saying it is going to come. Why? Because it is simply God's blessing. So God's promises are designed to bring about God's rewards, but for us, we need to wrap our minds around this from a New Testament perspective. God's Christ is designed to bring about God's rewards. So consider then this reality. We are called to holiness. You say, Steve, I thought you just said that Jesus made me holy. In the eyes of God, he made me, made me holy. And I would say that's true. We're called to holiness. But that holiness is found in the person of Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah. Um, consider this passage, Ephesians 1.3. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now please note, it does not say that you have to be practically holy. That you have to live lives of holiness in order to receive the blessings of God. Does it say that? It doesn't say that. It says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. This is something that is already ours. And it's like, how could it be ours? I'm not living my life the right way. Uh, Steve, are you trying to tell me that I don't have to live my life the right way and God will still bless me? And I would say, he would. He has. He will. That is what he does. That is what he does. But also notice what he says here, verse 4. Even as he chose us in him, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. That holiness, that blamelessness is found in Jesus. God looks at us, and this isn't us working harder. This isn't us being perfect 
it's, rest, it's resting on the perfection that is Jesus. How can he make this decision? Because it's what Jesus is going to do. It goes on. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. Friends, the fact that you are holy is nothing but the grace of God. And what I mean by that is not the fact that you are able to work harder and be able to have holiness in your life of this measure or that measure or this measure. I am talking about the fact that you are completely holy before God. And that is how God sees you. He really, really does. You say, Steve, you're taking away any motivation for me to be holy morally. And I would say, I'm not. I'm actually adding to it. And you say, please explain. You know, I grew up on a farm and we were taught to work. How many farmers do we have here, right? How many farmers? Some? None? What? Seriously? There we go. We got one. What is this? Is this Iowa? What's happening here? <laughs> All right. We have a few. It's a changing economy. Uh, <laughs> um, so I grew up on a farm we were taught to work and we were taught to work in a bit of an Old Testament way my dad used the lack of blessings to drive us back to himself hey think about that for a moment <laughs> one of the things my dad did my dad's here uh, so um, I'm not saying anything that I want in front of him because this is in front of him uh, <laughs> My dad, uh, I remember the day that dad drove us into town and he bought us a Nintendo and it blew our minds. Do you remember that, dad? Uh, and we were like, what is going on? It was not anybody's birthday. It wasn't Christmas. I mean, we, just, we had no idea. What is happening here? Um, is this the end? Is this how it begins? Uh, <laughs> it was unbelievable. Um, but dad was smart. Because we quickly grew addicted to the Nintendo. And then dad used the Nintendo as leverage for work. Uh, and so the Nintendo became the opportunity for him to say, hey, do you want to spend time with Nintendo? Um, we have to get all this work done. And we're like, all right, let's get the work done. <laughs> the Nintendo is calling, right? Uh, and, and so you have this idea there of like this lack of blessings that drive us back to what we should be doing. And he also used the promise of rewards and blessing as a motivation to draw us towards work on the farm, right? And that was very normal. All of us as parents do similar types of things with our children, don't we? Um, and it's like we're trying to get them to do the right thing, but sometimes you have to, you know, encourage them for that um, and, and to try to make that happen. Um, and so, so just think about this. My desire to work was, motiv was motivated by either discipline or blessing, uh, right? And so if I got enough discipline, I would work. And if I got enough blessing, I would work. <laughs> but that was, that was how I worked. That's what I did. Okay, so I, honestly, I think too many of us as believers, we live this way in the New Testament era. Where it's like, okay, if God disciplines me enough, I suppose I'll obey him. Or if God blesses me enough, I suppose I'll obey him. Uh, but then the moment that we start to get to the point where we think we don't need that, we decide not to obey him. And I would say we're thinking about it so wrongly. It's just not, it is not how it's supposed to be. So then I grew up. I went up to college. I got married. 
I got called back to Owatonna to serve as an assistant pastor there, and things had changed. No longer did my dad use the lack of blessings to get me to work, nor did he offer any rewards as a motivation to work. I had my own life. Dad was still on the farm. But here's the difference. I wanted to work. You know, when I grew up on the farm, and I labored all the time, and at the end of my time on the farm, I said, you know what, I don't think I want to be a farmer. <laughs> uh, and that's no fault of my dad at all. Uh, that's just where I was in my own heart. But as I grew up and I, grew, and, I, and I got old and I moved away, and then I came back to it, my perspective had changed. My dad had already, already given me all good things. And out of love for him, I wanted to help on the farm. And it was a massive reversal in my heart. Whereas before, I did it because I had to. Then I did it because I wanted to. And I say, friends, do you understand this is what Jesus has done for us? Uh, what God is doing in the Old Testament is he is bringing these Old Testament believers to the point where they're saying, please seek me because you must. In me you'll find blessing. In me you will find that I won't discipline you. But now, in Jesus, he's poured those blessings out upon us. In fact, when God looks at us, he already sees that we're holy. So you say, why should I live a holy life if God already sees me as holy? And the answer is, because of everything that Jesus has done. I want to be holy because I don't have to be anymore. Jesus made me holy. And so now, as a response to my Savior, I want to live a holy life. And it's completely different. It's exactly what we need to embrace from this passage. This is how it's different than it was for the people in Haggai's day. And friend, can I just encourage you that if you are seeking to live a holy life because you're afraid of what God might do to you, then your motivation is wrong. It's broken. And you say, I need to spend time meditating and drinking deep on all that Jesus has already accomplished for me. Because what that'll do is that will fill you up to the point where you will say, how could I not live for him? I want to be holy because he's made me holy. I want to walk in a manner worthy of that calling. Oh, how we have been blessed by Christ and in Christ. Ephesians 4, verse 1, it says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Please don't read that verse as a call to just work harder for God. What is it saying? You have been given a calling. You've already been called. And so why should I walk worthy of that? It's already mine. Why should I do it? And the answer is because it is yours. And because of that, you say, now I want to do it. Everything has changed. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So you say, okay, how do we apply this? How then shall we live? Can I just ask you this question? Are you holy because of Jesus? Because Jesus has not made everybody holy de facto. He has not simply said, I'm making the whole world holy. 
What he has done is he has come and offered his life as a sacrifice to be a propitiation, a covering for your life. But friends, you must actually turn to him and accept that by faith. You must actually ask him to save you from your sins. You must put your faith and trust in him. And if you are still attempting to work harder for the Lord in order to earn his favor, uh, then you are not holy because of Jesus. If you are saying, I'm not sure that I need that holiness, you are not holy before God. God will hold you accountable for all of your sins. But Jesus says, give them to me. I'll take them on my shoulders. I will pay that price. Oh, dear friend, what a tragedy it would be that you show up to Iowa regular Baptist camp and you listen to message after message, day after day, and you are not a follower of Jesus. And I would say, won't you turn to Jesus? Jesus came and died for you. He wants to make you holy. He wants to take care of your sin. Are you holy because of Jesus? Oh, if you're not there, if you have not accepted Jesus as Savior, then won't you talk to somebody who can help you? You know who they are. You have them in your life. Won't you talk to them? And if you say, I don't have anybody like that in my life, well, I would love to talk to you. You know, Danny would love to talk to you. You know, Michael would love to talk to you. Luke would love to talk to you. There's many people here. I met many pastors here. We'd love to talk to you. There's lots of people here. Say, hey, I need to be made holy because of Jesus. Talk to somebody. Are you holy because of Jesus? Are you praising God? Because of Jesus. This is no small thing. Because it's crucial for us, if we're going to love our Savior, for us to actually be in that process of loving Him. And so how do we do that? We have to think about Him. We have to meditate on Him. We have to rejoice in what He has done. We have to bask in the glory of the Son in order to have our hearts turned towards Him. And if you say, man, I just feel distant from Jesus, there's a reason that you feel distant from Jesus. You are not dwelling upon Him. You aren't seeing how lovely He is. And because you aren't seeing how lovely He is, you're forgetting that He's lovely. And you need more of that. Are you praising God because of Jesus? And then finally, are you seeking to be holy to earn favor with God? Or are you seeking to be holy because you have the favor of God? Oh, dear friends, there is a, a world of difference between those two. Are you trying to be holy in order to earn something? Hey, I just want God to look upon me with favor. I want him to be pleased with me, and so I want to be holy. Friends, I, I'm, I want to blow your mind as much as I can. God is pleased with you because of Jesus. It's like, what do I do with that? I say, well, I want to live for him then. Yeah. It's exactly what you do with it. You say, I want to be holy. Yeah. I want to be holy because of all that he has accomplished. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to look at your word, to study it. Lord, to see this, these truths um, in this marvelous Old Testament book, this prophecy that you gave to your people. And then to see how what you have given to us in Jesus and how much better it is and what a joy it is to rest in the Savior. Thank you that we don't have to be ritually clean anymore because Jesus has made us so. 
Father, help us to feel the weight of that. And help us to live in light of it. Help that to motivate us. Help us to desire holiness because we are already holy in your eyes. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.